Looks like we uh, just hit 6.30, so we can get started if you like. We'll jump back into chapter 9 here. We're not, we're not far into chapter 9. And uh, as is fitting for a Thanksgiving week, this is going to be a fairly relaxed text, I think, at least, uh, <laughs> I hope, relative to the others. So uh, we'll pick up right around verse 3 of chapter 9, right after we open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may your blessing be upon us, even as this week we give thanksgiving to you for all your many provisions, for your mercies, which are new each and every day, and for the plentiful redemption we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that he is our atoning sacrifice, and not ours only, but the atoning sacrifice of the whole world. We pray your blessing upon this study as we consider the things that Paul set before the Corinthian congregation. May you make them clear to us and clear to us as to how they apply in our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we had spent quite a bit of time talking about Adiaphora and how simple Remember, Adi offer things indifferent, neither commanded nor forbidden by God, but that things that are neither commanded nor forbidden by God can in fact become sinful depending upon the context. So great wisdom, great discernment is needed. And again, just a short quip when someone says, well, that's Adi Afra, that's not the end of the discussion, that's the beginning of the discussion. Someone quotes God's word, that should be the end of the discussion. <laughs> but not if someone says something is Adiaphora. All right, at, uh, you know, just to get a running start, we've probably hit these first three verses plenty, but at nine, chapter 9, verse 1, let's just get a running start. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? And of course he's saying yes, um, and we've set that aside for your sake. That's kind of the beginning of the thrust of his argument. Um, I will quibble a little with the use of the word right. It's in Greek exousia, which is authority, is a much better translation, and I think cleaner. I don't have this all completely solidified in my mind yet, but the idea of right tends to put a very different context than authority, and I think it has to do with American egalitarianism and just hating hierarchies of any kind. But Paul is, I, I think, seeing at least where you see in English the word right, see it colored by the word authority or having been authorized by Christ to do such a thing. So have we not been authorized to eat and drink? Have we not been authorized to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no authority or right to refrain from working for a living? All right, well, then we go on with the rest of his argument. But let's stop and just get a little detail here on these verses. So Paul's talking about his freedom in Christ, his authority in Christ, and then his setting that aside for love of those to whom he's ministering. And, of course, that's going to be the template we're free in Christ to do many things, but we curtail that freedom for the sake of love, um, for the sake of loving our, our neighbors, our fellow Christians. Of course, here in view is whether or not pastors can be married. And obviously, Paul thinks so. <laughs> Paul himself, there's pretty good evidence that Paul was a widower. Uh, we saw that evidenced earlier when he was talking about marriage. Um, remain as he is. In any case, he wasn't married. Uh, and there's decent evidence that he probably was at one time, but he has remained single. Obviously, the apostles are listed as are the brothers of the Lord. Now, the brothers of the Lord has been interpreted in different ways, but fairly standard interpretation up to relatively recently 
are that the brothers are children of Joseph, but not children of Mary. So they'd be what we call half-brothers or step-brothers, um, but not necessarily the case. Especially today, there are many who see these as offspring of Mary and Joseph and their union. So Christ obviously came first, and then came the other uh, brothers of the Lord. So it's a, this is a, theologic, a theological question that's an open question. You can pick whatever you want, and you're not free to condemn somebody on the other side or not. Obviously, in the background is the idea of the semper virgo, or does uh, Mary remain perpetually a virgin? <laughs> I should probably have dusted off on this, but I'm pretty sure that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and basically all the confessors held to the semper virgo. So any of your magisterial reformers or reformed tradition held to uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, again, you're free to take it or leave it. I think probably if you took a poll at the se- of the seminary faculties, most would think that uh, they consummated the marriage. If you, look, if you do have a study Bible and you look down at the note on chapter 9, verse 5, uh, most of the way down, three, third line from the bottom of that note, brothers of the Lord, Mark 6, 3, names... Uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. (coughs) And James and Judas are thought to be the authors of the book of James and the book of Jude. I think the book of James is especially compelling. Um, with, With the book of Jude, we just don't have enough data. I mean, linguistic data. But James... James writes the way Jesus speaks. One, it's not a it's not a stretch to think of them having uh, overlapping domestic lives. Okay, and then uh, Cephas, Peter, is obviously married. Uh, Jesus heals his uh, heals his mother in law. Do you remember that account? She's sick, and then he heals her, and then she immediately gets up and starts to serve them. So very clear that uh, the apostles held that pastors could get married and um, had that authority or that right. Okay, and then Paul quickly transitions to another freedom that they've chosen to curtail, to set aside another authority that they've they've set aside, they've been authorized um, not to work, but to gain their living from the gospel. And they've set this aside for the good of the Corinthians. That's really what follows. So at verse 7, who, ser- uh, who serves as a... Uh, wait, did I finish six? I don't, I'm sorry if I didn't. Let's just do six. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay. And this will become clear if it isn't already. Seven, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? The answer is no one. These are rhetorical questions. It is interesting that here is a uh, threefold and what will follow are two more. So in total, a fivefold description of what could well be a description of the office of the pastorate. And obviously, we're going to see Jesus reflected in these. Whoever serves as a soldier or who serves as a soldier at his own expense, no one. Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit, that'll bring to your mind one of the parables that Jesus teaches. Or who tends a flock, who shepherds a flock, is a more literal translation, without getting some of the milk. So was Christ a soldier? Absolutely. He's described in scriptures as a man of war. In fact, he um, engaged in battles on behalf of Israel. Uh, was Christ a, a one who planted a vineyard? Well, certainly. In Isaiah, the song of the vineyard, and then in the parables, um, was Jesus a shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, David says. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So here I think you can see three descriptions um, of Christ, and since the pastoral office is Christ's office, that's 
men are called into the office of Christ. That's why we use the language of in the stead, in the place of, and by the command of. But the office, properly speaking, is his. And so we see these realities then reflected in the, in the nature of the office. Not to get too bound up with that, though, <clears throat> because the simple point of the rhetoric is people who work um, should get paid. Okay, verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Yeah, so the one time the ESV chooses to use the word authority, it's not actually there. <laughs> do I say these things as a human or in, in my speech, you know, uh, and human authority is a fine, in terms of communicating meaning. Does not the law, so here obviously he means the Old Testament scriptures, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and this is cited from Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. So here is another name uh, for pas- that <laughs> sometimes been attributed to pastors, oxen. And um, I don't know... I don't know if this has any legitimacy at all, but someone once told me that the stoles are supposed to be yokes. <laughs> so that's interesting. <laughs> you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So obviously the, the threshing floor, the winnowing, the treading out of the grain, um, you can't muzzle an ox because it's cruel. The animal's working to tread out that you may as well let him eat as he's treading it out, right? So he should eat from his labor. That's the ox. And that's what is laid down by Moses in Deuteronomy 25.4. Paul continues, second half of verse 9, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Paul doesn't think so. <laughs> I think here's a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, I think God is concerned about oxen, and I think that Paul would acknowledge that. But for the sake of his rhetoric, he's saying that's not, that's not his primary concern. Or one could even argue, if, if God feels this way about oxen, how much more does he feel this way about men? Verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope. So here's plowman, which would be maybe the fourth of the five, unless you want to include oxen. The plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things, is fine. It's just pneumatica. Uh, yeah, pneumatica. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap sarkika, fleshly things, material things from you? If others share in this, uh, yeah, if others share in this rightful claim, I mean, it's not wrong. I just think it's better translated something to the effect of if others... um, partake of this authority over you or if others share in this rightful claim on you that's fine do not we even more so are we not uh, are Paul is saying Barnabas and I not entitled to be compensated for preaching the gospel to make our living to have our bread off of uh, preaching the gospel that's what he's saying so far nevertheless we have not made use of this authority or right, but we endure a stegemen bear. We bear anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So what Paul's pivoting and doing is saying, once again, we have this authority from God to receive our living from the preaching of the gospel, but we've set this authority aside. We've set this freedom aside for the sake of you, Corinthians, um, that we can present the gospel to you without charge. Now, Paul's point is here in, in particular is he's going above and beyond with the Corinthians. And he's going to make that point all the more certain in the verses to come. 
but he's effectively making the argument that we have gone above and beyond for your sake. And he's going to ultimately challenge the Corinthians, and of course us as well, to go above and beyond and to not look at the Christian life as like, what's the bare minimum I can put in? And uh, he's going to, in the same way that he's talked about soldiers and uh, vineyard workers and shepherds, he's going to move on to athletic analogies for uh, the Christian life. Good. Okay, so a couple more examples. Now, going away from the oxen, to verse 13, do you not know that those who are, it's just working in the temple, employed is a little anachronistic. I don't think they filled out W-2s. Do you not know that those who are working in the temple service get their food from the temple? Um, I think the study note makes, I, I think Paul has in mind here the temple in Jerusalem, but the study note makes the point that it, it it could equally be the pagan temples. It just seems like an odd thing for Paul to say, though. So, however you want to read that. Second part of verse 13, and those who serve at the altar share in um, the sacrificial offerings. That's, I mean, that's a kind of a dynamic translation, but it's fine. In the same way, verse 14, and here's really the here's really the highlightable, I know that's not a word, highlightable verse in this section. In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so Paul sees this as a dominical command from the Lord. And that's very important. It's not to say that pastors can't set this aside if necessary that pastors can't agree to be quote-unquote worker priests or to have some have some other vocation, um, as long as that other vocation is of necessity. If a congregation is paying enough for the pastor to live, he shouldn't go moonlighting in order to get rich. That's to be entangled in civilian pursuits. So he, he should get his living from it. Um, he may... Uh, from time to time, set that aside for the good of the church or set that aside for some theological purpose or um, work as a quote-unquote worker priest. That's our modern language um, for the sake of that congregation and as an act of love. But one thing that's you know particularly become disturbing is where you have district presidents in our synod or other church hierarchs uh, saying that um, worker priests should become the norm or should be normalized or we need more of these and why that's problematic to say the least is because of this verse our lord jesus himself commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel so in no way should this become some should we make contrary prescriptions uh, that that men should in fact plan to be worker priests or some such thing. I don't know. Maybe there's is there much talk of that at the seminary these days, Vicar? Don't mean to put you on the spot, but not really. Good. That's because you go to Fort Wayne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. So an important point, and um, yeah. I don't know. Anything more need to be said there? Everybody tracking so far? Yeah, it yeah. seems like he's really, if they would have read Acts, they would get some of the information out of that. Mm -hmm. If they were Jews, they should have also known the, the Lord command because they would have known the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So some of this, I'm almost saying they're kind of ignorant of. And then the other thing is, uh, like I said, a soldier, um, People that don't invest anything, it doesn't mean anything. So people that don't invest their tithe or offering, they don't have no skin in the game. It's like buying a house. Mm -hmm. They want some money from you mm -hmm. so that you don't just up and live in the house and take off for five months and not pay rent. Anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You need some skin in the game. 
Yeah, yeah. It's um, I mean, we have, we have a very. I always feel like I'm preaching to the choir uh, here at this congregation. We have very generous um, givers who uh, give offerings, but um, it is an offer. You know, when we give our offerings, God loves a cheerful giver. In the New Testament, there's no strict amount set. Um, but but just a couple reflections there. Give as unto the Lord. That's part of your priestly sacrifice uh, unto the Lord. And, you know, something that, that I've always considered, and obviously it's just, it's closer to me proximally because I'm a pastor and because my dad was a pastor. But as you give, you're not just thinking, okay, well, what am I getting out of this? Um, oh, it's cheaper than a movie. How much is a movie? Okay, I'll give about that much. You're thinking about what is the value of the gospel being preached in this place? And if the Lord gives you means, you're thinking not just about uh, how can I support the gospel for me and my family, but how can I support the gospel being preached to these families who can't afford it? So you, there's a there's an aspect of supporting the preaching of the gospel in a given locale where if God's given you the means to be a benefactor for the sake of others, um, give with that mindset as well. That it's not just you know it's just think of like it's not for the roadies. You know, like, okay, here's what I'd like to give for the sake of the roadies, but now how can I give for the sake of uh, the other people gathered here, the community that might be, that might hear, et cetera. So just some nebulous thoughts um, on offering and the nature of that, especially in this context of um, it going specific to the preaching of the gospel. And yeah, you were right, Chris. I, sh- I should have pointed that out too. You were exactly right that in the Old Testament, um, the Levitical priests, and given that's different than the pastoral office, but the Levitical priests ate from the offerings. And so you can see that parallel. I have a note here also that in Luke 10, 7, Christ himself says the laborer deserves his wages in, in regarding. So that's um, a specific place we have recorded where the Lord commands this. Okay, if nothing further, I'll, I'll go forward then. Now, this next section can get a little tricky to understand when you get down to like looking at the trees. But if you zoom out and don't lose sight of the forest, it's straightforward enough. 15. But I have made no use of any of these. That's just how the how it reads. Now the ESV puts in rights. I have made no use of any of these, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So Paul says, don't misunderstand the nature of my letter. I'm not saying, hey, it's time to start ponying up. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So Paul's saying, here is my extraordinary act in your midst, Corinthians, that I can boast in, that I've set aside this divine authority for your sake, and I'd rather die than give that up. That's what Paul's saying. 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. He's saying, look, the Lord Jesus told me to go preach the gospel. So uh, necessity is laid upon me. I'm not boasting by just doing what, as a slave, doing what my master tells me to do. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my authority or my right in the gospel. So Paul's talking about his specific situation with the Corinthians, and in this he can boast that he, to them, presents the gospel uh, free of charge. I don't think it's here in this section, but elsewhere he'll express concern that, you know, am I robbing other churches because other churches are supporting him? You know, am I robbing other churches to benefit you? So Paul is getting his living from the gospel um, from other churches. Occasionally he's a tent maker, so you see that occasionally 
uh, take place. But it doesn't seem to be all that regular in Paul's ministry as an apostle. Okay, clear enough, 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all. And there's another highlightable verse because it's a main thesis and theme of 1 Corinthians. Though I am free from all, and that has to do with that idea of, remember being free in the gospel, the vertical, free toward God. Luther will talk about that as faith. But I have made myself a servant to all. That's bound to all, and that's love. So the freedom of the Christian, Luther talks this way that, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but a Christian is simultaneously Lord over all and servant of all, that kind of paradox. Uh, Utterly free through the gospel, utterly bound through love for neighbor. And all of that flowing right here from verse 19. So once more, for though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all, really properly slave of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. Now you say, well, Paul, isn't he already a Jew? Of course he is. But he does these things that he doesn't have to do. For example, in Acts 21, he takes a Nazarite vow, shaves his head, does the offerings. Um, and, and so acts as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. What would be a concrete example of that? Timothy, he has circumcised. Titus, he refuses to have circumcised because the circumstances were different. They were compelling trying to compel Titus to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul says, absolutely not. You're not going to be circumcised because our consciences aren't bound to that. But then when it comes to just, um, there, there's not that kind of compulsion, it's just for the sake of the gospel, then Timothy, he does in fact have circumcised. So to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. And he wants to make that very clear. That I might win those under the law. So Jews and those under the law are basically the same. 21, to those outside the law, um, this, this would be the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul making a, a distinction there that is made frequently throughout the New Testament. We're not, Paul's not saying, hey, um, I became a complete, uh, he's setting aside the ceremonial law, he's not setting aside the moral law. He's not setting aside the law of love, the law of Christ. And that's the point. So not being outside the law of God, not, he just said, I became as one outside the law, I became as a Gentile. That is, I didn't follow the ceremonial laws of God's word. And then he quickly corrects the understanding, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. So you've pretty much got Jew and Gentile here thus far. And then 22, to the weak, I became weak. Um, This is probably a reference back to chapter 8. I think verse 9 is one of the first places we see this. And remember the weak brother who... um, can't eat food offered to idols because he can't extricate his conscience. But the weak here, you know, by extension, could possibly be Gentiles, but I think makes all the more sense seeing like Gentile Christians, Gentile converts. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become an American evangelical to all people. I just put that in because this is, uh, you know, the synod, well, those within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod who push contemporary worship and who push all this stuff say, hey, we've got to become all things to all people. Well, how come when you say become all things to all people, it always looks like American evangelicalism? How many congregations are being created by the Pacific Southwest District to bring in Roman Catholics? 
or to use Roman Catholic style to bring in the lost. Zero. So it's just a fib. I have become all things to all people. So despite the twisted use of that passage in our context, it's nonetheless a very profound, beautiful passage expressing the true love that we have as servants of Christ Jesus. Um, Of course, Paul speaking of himself as an apostle, but by extension, you know, all of us, this is the nature of love. 23, I do it all for the sake of gospel that I may. Here's kind of a soon koinonos. Koinonos is the communion word, that I might commune with them in the gospel's blessings. So he already has the communion of the gospel's blessings, the sharing of the gospel's blessings, and he becomes all things to all people that they might join him in that communion of the gospel's blessings. And important to point out, because over in chapter 10, we're going to be back over to communion proper. And so I don't, not that I think that there's a distinction in Paul, I don't really think there is much of a distinction. To be a Christian is to commune, and to commune is to be a Christian. All right, now he pivots and seems to broaden a little because at least what follows um, is directly apropos of all Christians. Um, What is preceded by extension follows to all Christians, but here it's explicitly general. 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Don't have to rehearse that. We've effectively got the same thing today as they had then. Um, Runners who would run in a race to win the prize. Um, And now he says to all Christians, run so that you may obtain it. That is to say, desire to uh, do your best to excel, to have victory, to win which I think is very important because so much of so much of what's happened again I'm I'm being very critical of the LCMS. I still think the LCMS is the best thing going <laughs> by a long 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 shot. I think it's the best confession out there, but it's not to say we can't be critical. And one of the ways um that that I think we should should be critical is we have for a few decades now, maybe more, articulated the gospel in such a way that hey, it's all finished. It's all done. Any attempt to exert yourself is self-righteousness. I, I think if, if we had like the modern, like if, if we had St. Paul and we were going to turn, transform him into a modern Lutheran, he would not say like run a race as to win it. He'd say it's all finished. Go sit on the couch and wait for the Lord to come. But of course, that's not what Paul says. Of course, salvation is finished. It's accomplished by Christ. We're justified. Done. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is one of rest. And that's really the nature of this whole section. He's challenging us. And I, I think particularly, like, why are there so few men in the church? Well, one of the reasons is because we need to be challenged. That's our nature. And the scriptures do challenge us. It's just that the church hasn't for a long time. So we need Paul. We need our pastors. We need our fellow Christians to challenge us. We need a sense of wholesome competition. I mean, that's really what this is. It's a kind of wholesome competition because you're, you're racing against other runners, but only one receives the prize. So run that, you may obtain it. All right, he continues on. Yeah. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's okay. Every athlete agonizomenos, agonizes. This is the word, the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about uh, striving to enter through the narrow gate. So this active language comes from Christ himself. That's Luke chapter 13. This uh, agonizing, striving, exerting oneself to the max. Every uh, runner or every athlete um, should exert himself to the max 
And as he's doing so, he exercises self-control in all things. So think about an Olympic, an Olympic sprinter. Does he just go eat whatever he wants? Does she just sleep all day and never train? No, the ones who win the race, the, the excellent athletes, the one who win the race, it's a holistic, it's a holistic endeavor. So you're self-controlled in all things. So, you know, when you look at professional athlete, athletes, well, maybe that's a bad example. At least when you're thinking about the NFL, those guys are always in trouble. But if you think of Olymp- Olympic athletes, at least, uh, it's very regimented, isn't it? Sometimes right down to the meal, right down to the calorie, right down to the amount. So all of this is very, is very scientific in our day and age. Um, it was then, too. It just didn't take quite the sophisticated form it does today. But the point is that as you're striving to your utmost, in order to perform, you exercise self-control in all things, training, diet, sleep, all of the above. And so the analogy here is is straightforward and clear although you know probably countless sermons could be preached on what exactly that means concretely i'll just do a quick little riff Uh, the scriptures and luther's small catechism enjoin us as basic basic athletic regimen to pray at the beginning and end of every day and to pray at meals there's just a baseline to recite the Ten Commandments from memory, the Creed from memory, pray the Lord's Prayer, pray whatever other petitions there are, uh, add in a psalm on the, uh, the morning or evening session. Obviously, you're all sitting in a Bible study. Nice work. Preaching to the choir, but don't just go to divine. You know, when you go to divine service, look at it as like the high point of the week. Look at it as the time to wrestle with the text. You know, isn't that what uh, Israel did, what Jacob did with God, uh, wrestled with him until he received a blessing? That's a microcosm of um, who we are collectively, of course. But individually, when we come to divine service, be prepared for God to assert and for you to wrestle with that assertion and take it in and grow stronger. So, yeah, divine service is in that sense a spiritual training, a spiritual combat sport, sparring with the Lord and being challenged and being pushed and being strengthened by him. So yeah, nail down, uh, nail down divine service and, and be passionate about it. Treat it, like it's, uh, treat it like it's an event, a thing, a thing to be prepared for. Uh, your daily life, treat it like it's a thing to be prepared for. Um, we'll enter into Advent, which is frequently used historically as a season of repentance or penitence, kind of a mini Lent. You can use it as such if you like. Think about what you might uh, what you might do in terms of fasting, almsgiving, increasing something for that short season of Advent. These are all just me riffing on this idea of exercise and self control and all things in order to run as one who wants to win the prize. And none of this is contrary to the gospel. Rather, all of this flows from the gospel. It's like, what else are you going to be doing with your time? Languishing? (laughs) Getting dissipated? (laughs) All right, he goes on then. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Think about that. Think about all the effort and exertion that athletes engage in in order to get who won the Super Bowl three years ago. I watched it. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody cares. As soon as it passes, nobody cares. Did they, Chiefs? Who knows? I trust you. I I honestly don't know. Uh, for for all the exertion and all the money and all the training and all the time, the the wreath is still perishable. The trophy is still the fame, the accolade is all perishable. Um, so if if they do all that for a perishable wreath, a perishable trophy, we do so for an imperishable. So again, you see the challenge there. It's an immense challenge. Do we take our, our Christianity as seriously as an Olympic athlete takes his uh, event? 
<laughs> Probably not. I mean, that's the truth. But then Paul is here challenging us. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Even if you have a season and then an off season, we'll take advantage of the season. Okay, probably enough on that. He continues 26, so I do not run aimlessly, which is hilarious. Picture Paul in his jogging shorts and his headband, running around in circles, running here and there without aim, without purpose. No, he says, I don't run aimlessly. So as he's running, as he's training, as he's racing, etc., it's not, it's always with a goal in mind. And that goal in this case is, is narrow, is pressing on toward the prize, pressing on toward heaven. To receive from the Lord that well done, good and faithful servant. To have one's praise be praised not from men, but from God. All right, the analogy shifts in the latter half of 26. I do not box as one beating the air. So again, kind of aimless, not even shadow boxing, but just kind of aimless swinging. Paul's saying, I don't do that. I don't box as one beating the air. So even boxing, even here something that is an aggressive, violent sport, is used as an analogy for the Christian faith. We should see ourselves as uh, running a race, as boxing an opponent. Of course, maybe we could tie in that our opponents aren't flesh and blood here, but principalities and powers of darkness, etc. 27, but I discipline my body. Uh, Lockwood, in his commentary, that's the Concordia commentary, says that it's literally, I give my body a black eye. So he sees it as a continuation of the boxing analogy. I do not box as one beating the air, but I give my body a black eye and keep it under control. So I'm boxing with my body, which if that's the case, and I think it it may well be, then the idea of boxing suddenly shifts to from the opponent is out there to the opponent is myself. And the opponent is my flesh that I'm beating down and suppressing. So kind of gives a different flavor for... Paul will, in in the book of Romans, talk about crucifying the flesh. Luther, in the small catechism, will talk about drowning the flesh. Here in 1 Corinthians, we could talk about beating up on the flesh. So you wake up in the morning and, you know, you got all these sinful passions and impulses. Time to strap on the gloves and do some boxing. This has been sometimes used in the history of the church. I discipline my body or I, uh, I beat my body um, as a proof text for like practices like self-flagellation, hitting oneself with a whip or something like that. Uh, that's a stretch to say the least. And in Colossians, Paul seems to make a statement directly contrary to that, that such abuse of the body, harsh treatment of the body, um, is of no use in furthering one's sanctification. So I think we can safely rule that kind of thing out. We can talk about, um, we can certainly talk about spiritual disciplines. We can certainly talk about fasting. We can certainly talk about almsgiving. We can certainly talk about self-sacrifice. Those are all in keeping, but something like uh, beating the body or uh, uh, sleeping uh, on a bed of nails or whatever you might, in, whatever the monks invented, I think we can pr- pretty safely preclude here. Luther, Luther was always hating on the Carthusians, and the, uh, and the confessions do the same. The Carthusian monks were like the Navy Seal of monks. They were constantly trying to one-up each other with whatever uncomfortable things they could make up to repress the, fr- the flesh. I don't think Paul would go for any of that. So that's, that's of no use. But what is of use is combating one's sinfulness. So to stretch the analogy a little bit more, you know, you've got to have, you may want to take time to strategize how to go against the passions. Think about it like a war. Think about it like a boxing match. Think about knowing your opponent, watching the tape, watching the film, finding ways to subvert your opponent, which is your own flesh. Yes, sir. Let me go back to this uh, verse. I'm struggling with the meaning of it. Uh, I've become all things for all people. Uh, you could put a little more uh, on that for me to understand. 
Um, mm. We know that he had Timothy circumcised so he could spread it out. So he, he became, you know, I guess physically like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and but then you you alluded to something. Do we become, you know, uh, you know, some of the first, you know, the Protestants, the evangelical now, do we mm -hmm. become like them in order to win them to Christ? And I think your indication is no. So, mm -hmm. how? What are some tangible things? Uh, we. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'll try. Um, Vicar is from Oklahoma. He's become a Californian to win Californians. Uh, and this, you know, this is something that um, that all pastors do, even if it's somewhat subtle. Is when you go into a congregation, you pay attention to the culture, you pay attention to the people, and you try to fit in, right? even if your own personal sensibilities are completely different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of thing. I, I don't know. Um, you know, there's, our culture is very homogenous and intermingled and intermixed, so it's probably somewhat difficult for us to give examples. We're used to this kind of cultural intermingling and intermixing. Um, but if you, you could imagine, you know, if you, if you go to a, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Um, when you visit a foreign country, you pay attention to how are people acting? How are they dressing? What are they doing? What are the social norms and mores? That's just a small way of becoming all things to all people. We've got, um, times where Paul knows that he's going to a Jewish community to preach the gospel. And all they've been hearing is that Paul's rebelled. And he doesn't follow the scriptures and he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he's trampling Moses. And he, so Paul goes out of his way to show deference and respect and honor. Um, in those cases, he has Timothy circumcised. He takes the vow. He does what he can to sh show, you know, deference to that, um, to that group of people and their, and their kind of culture. Um, same with the, same with the Gentiles. You know, that's, that's, um, Yeah, same with the Gentiles. I mean, I don't think that Paul's like, oh boy, I can't wait to go eat the, that meat sacrifice to idols, but hey, I'm here and I'm, and I will. And I think you could even see like Jesus himself doing this when he would eat and drink with sinners. I don't think that Jesus is particularly compelled to go out and have wine parties all the time and hang out with, uh, with sinners. But he wanted to do that because these are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he, he, whatever form that takes, he's willing to take to, re to reach out to them. And I think that you can see that also just in, in different ways that Jesus interacts with people. Remember how he, how he interacts with the, um, the Samaritan woman at the well? So, um, he doesn't immediately put her off, even though he, basically calls her a heretic <laughs> and says, you worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. So it's not like he's soft, but he is, he is accommodating to her and having a conversation with her. So that might be an example. I think, I think, um, yeah. And I think we as Christians tend to do this naturally in ways that you know, you, you all have come into a culture. Some, not, not all of you are born and raised Lutheran. The, the Lutheran congregation, the culture of a Lutheran congregation can be strange. You know, can, it can be, uh, we have Oktoberfests. Why? <laughs> we have these things called potlucks. Why? Uh, so I think that there's, you know, accommodations we kind of make, um, for each other that we're, that we don't even really realize. We do this without compromising our faith. It's kind of like a, it's an art form to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely an art form, I think. And I always, I always marvel at Jesus. I mean, I, I, I think it's incredible and I don't know how he does it. He has a way of being I mean, the most moral person in the room, obviously, and yet not being off-putting to sinners. 
he speaks the truth and sometimes very hard truths, but he manages to do this in a way that most sinners receive what he has to say. Um, the, uh, the Pharisees don't, generally speaking. So yeah, there's an art form there. There's an art form. And I think, I think again, maybe just to get a little more accurate bead, uh, I think Paul is speaking as an apostle. Um, it is by extension for us Christians to take in and emulate. But we're not traveling around like Paul is. You know, we're not going to all these diverse places and diverse cultures as Paul is. So that's something to keep in mind, too. I don't know, Barry. I don't feel like I did a very good job, but that's about the best I can do. Yeah. I read about this guy who planted churches or whatever in like the late 20th century up until a few years ago. And he said you need to do that not associating with like Western culture. There's another like Asia and different countries. Mm-hmm. And he's, he was saying it's not, you don't mix the gospel with the culture. You're not trying to impose your culture on them. It's more just about focusing on the gospel and kind of blending in with their culture. Yeah. I don't know if that's. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. I mean, in some, in some Asian households, you know, even here in America, you take off your shoes before you go in. That's the custom. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm going to leave my, my sandals on, thank you very much, because I'm free in the gospel, and let me tell you about the gospel freedom, and these kinds of things are stupid. He'd take his shoes off, and he'd go in, and you know he'd eat the food that was served him, and the way it was served him. And he'd communicate the gospel in ways that they could hear. I, you know, that just trying to kind of blur some things together here so that you can see how um, the freedom we have in Christ is a freedom where there is no, nothing culturally binding upon us. Right? Because it's what you eat or what you drink or what you wear or what you do. None of that has to do with righteousness before God. So we're totally free. But how then do you use that freedom? You set it aside for the sake of love and love for your neighbor and reaching your neighbor, whatever customs they might have, whatever rules they may have. Now, it's different, though. And the exception to that is like the Judaizing where it's like, hey, you have to do this in order to be saved. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Then you should say no. Or, you know, if you walked into someone's home and they were like, okay, you need to light this incense to Buddha or something like that, you'd be like, uh, no. So the buck stops doctrinally where there's a, where there's a hard line. We must obey God and not man um, in that case. But otherwise, we should set aside the freedom we have for the sake of loving others, caring for others, winning others to the gospel. All right, good question. Good conversation. Anything uh, Anything else rattling around? Don't get any ideas of wearing a Hawaiian shirt when you preach it. <laughs> <laughs> There's some cultural accommodation that even I can't do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Peter was rebuked by Paul for not mingling with the Gentiles when the Jews were around. So, so he separated from from the Gentiles to uh, I don't know appease, maybe too strong of a word, but mm-hmm. to curry favor or something to to identify certainly with the Jews, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How, how? So that context seems to be specifically a Christian context. So imagine walking in for a potluck here at Agape Hall. And the Jewish converts are sitting over here and the Gentile converts are sitting over there. And Peter, instead of like correcting this or pulling the tables together, whatever goes and sits with the Jews, you know, that kind of thing. I think in that case, isn't it even, it's more like the context is the, it would be something like the, the congregation is Gentile, but you've got these visiting Jews and then he goes and sits or these visiting Judaizing Christians. I mean, and he goes and sits with them. So Paul rebukes this. Okay, so yes, we're uh, talking about running the race. We're talking about boxing and beating the body, keeping it under control, so self-control. And it's not easy. 
I mean, it's very difficult. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So again, Paul then takes it back to himself personally and his role as an evangelist, his role as preaching to others. Um, that is to say, he doesn't practice what he preaches. Pastor, mm-hmm. Kenny, that, that part of the, that verse is difficult for me to understand. So if he lets his body discipline him, if he lets the flesh have its way with him, then even as he's preaching, it doesn't negate the gospel itself, but it would disqualify him. And the disqualify here may even be like, like going outside of the rules of the boxing match or going outside of the rules of the race. Mm-hmm. Now, in the back of Paul's mind with this boxing oneself, disciplining one's body, giving oneself a black eye, arguably all the way through, is he has a concern with the Corinthians about idolatry and about sexual immorality. And I I think if you just sort of think broadly about what we've covered so far in this study, what we've covered so far in in the text, you can see, you'll be able to remember and recall those themes emerging time and again. And I think he's he's got that in the back of his mind even in this section because that's where he's going to go in chapter 10. So chapter 10, verse 1, not really a great place for a chapter break. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, do you remember the uh, pillar of cloud? By day and the pillar of fire by night. And so there's this pillar and it's going up. And so they're under the cloud, being led by the pillar of cloud. And that pillar would lead them um, through the Red Sea. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. So talking about the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Except for the children. They were made to walk around because there's not baptism for children. I had to walk around the edge. Paul is careful to make that point lest we get the wrong idea. Of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. So uh, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Every, every age, all of God's people. And it's true. Uh, the Red Sea is a precursor, is a type of holy baptism. You can think of the, the things that God does through water. You can think of water in creation. Remember how the Spirit's hovering over the face of the deep, and then the creation comes forth. Um, you can think then also of the flood, how God brings about a new creation through the flood waters. So God is teaching us all the way through Scripture, and of course Scripture is just reflecting history all the way through history of the importance of the role of water and how God makes new creation from water, how God destroys the wicked world and brings forth Noah and seven others, a a new world, how Peter will talk about this as Noah being saved through the waters. So baptism now saves you. And then, of course, here the Red Sea. The Red Sea is the destruction of Pharaoh and his army, and it's the salvation and the beginning, the new birth of the nation of Israel as they have come up out of Egypt and now they serve the Lord and, and him only. I mean, much more could be said, but when Paul looks back at the Old Testament, he sees a precursor to holy baptism. And he sees this kind of Old Testament baptism, figuratively speaking, taking place um, that's then going to talk about, I mean, he's going to directly compare that to the New Testament baptism, which is why that word, if, if we're looking at it through the lens of whether or not children should be baptized, it's pretty definitive here. But that's really a tangent. It's really an aside. Okay, so all were, um, I'm just going to pick up at verse 2. 
all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. What, what is Paul, what, what's Paul's point, do you think? Jews went through everything. Okay, so all the Jews went through. They had, they had, um, they had baptism of sorts, and now they've got this spiritual eating and this spiritual drinking of sorts. Paul's going to make the point they had communion. Okay, so all were baptized into Moses and the cloud. And in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What would have been the food that they ate? The manna. Do you remember John 6, Jesus' sermon on the manna? Your fathers ate the bread, the manna, in the wilderness and died. I am the true manna, the true bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of me will live. So Jesus himself teaches, and and Paul's writing 20 years later, some decades later. So all the Christians know this, know this fundamental teaching of Jesus, that he's the true manna. So when Paul says that, hey, they all ate the spiritual food, everyone's thinking, well, we eat the manna that is Christ, they all drank this from the, the this spiritual drink. They drank the water that flowed from the rock that is Christ. What's the spiritual drink that we have? The blood that flows from Christ. Really poignant because uh, the last time that God works the miracle of water from the rock, do you remember the circumstances? God says to Moses to speak to the rock. Of course, Moses doesn't. What does he do? Strikes the rock. And I saw some of you doing the same hand motion that I thought it was. So striking up the rock. And maybe that's not wrong per se, but there's a different way to strike the rock. And that might drive home the point even further. One might also take the butt of the staff and strike the rock or strike the rock. When was Christ the rock struck for us? On the cross. And outflowed what? Just blood? Water and blood. So we've got this connection. Moses exemplifies the law. And so the law strikes the rock just as the law strikes Christ. Um, And Moses, on account of his striking of the rock, cannot enter the promised land. And that's typological for the law striking Christ, and that being the finality of the law. The law that accuses us does not follow us into the promised land with Christ. Okay, so some beautiful parallelism there that this nation here, probably understood by these first century Christians, so I'm just drawing that out for you. Paul's point then is look at the Old Testament people. Look at our fathers. They had baptism and they had the Lord's Supper. That's effectively the argument he's making so far, isn't it? Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All right. So here's the limitation of remember your baptism. Here's the limitation of just keep taking communion and it's all going to be okay. Paul would say, excuse me, they had baptism and they had communion. Nevertheless, God still was, what's the language? Not pleased. That's pretty tame, isn't it? For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul's point should already be clear. But in case it isn't, verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We can't say simply because we've been baptized and because we have spiritual food and spiritual drink that we can engage in idolatry and sexual immorality and with impunity and go without punishment. We will be punished. Paul's saying these things were written for us as an example that we would not do as they did. 
whether temporal consequences in view or eternal really doesn't matter. I mean, avoid both, right? So these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of their, uh, them were. As it is written, the pe- oh my goodness, what have I done? We're five minutes over. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I had no intention of doing that. We'll, we'll break here next week. Please feel free, whoever notices next time, to stop me. I'm so sorry. I want to be respectful of your time. We'll pick up next week then with the rest of this argument uh, in verse 6 and following. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanks for joining us, all you guys online. We've got an army of you tonight. It's wonderful. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. See you later.